Beowulf by Neil Foster MacPhail, read by Mike Moore. Book Three, Old Beowulf and the Dragon. Chapter One, The Horde of the Dragon. Now clearly, Beowulf could have cashed in on this victory. He could have gotten as much treasure as possible and sailed it back to his uncle's great hall. He could have dove back down to the Grendelkin's lair and brought up far more of the treasure. He could even, one imagines, have fulfilled the fears of Wealthiau and possibly Unferth and tried to become the richest, most powerful man in Heorot, perhaps even trying to rule there after Hrothgar died. But clearly, Beowulf didn't want any of this and just went home returning hunting to Unferth with some very kind words, considering. In fact, when he returned to Yetland, Beowulf didn't even keep what little treasure he brought back with him, but gave it all to his uncle Higelac. To be fair, his uncle did then reward him with lands and wealth, and despite not really trying, one day, Beowulf became king. The thin, young red-haired man with the wispy beard was no great warrior, he knew he could not expect to be awarded gold rings and lands and fame. So when he started to get the worse end of a battle against some invading pirates, he was delighted to find an entrance to a cave in which to hide. And hide he did. But as he went in, he found that it was an entrance to a deep underground cavern containing a sea of treasure. On the treasure hoard slept a truly enormous dragon in the manner of dragons. Worms gather the wealth, and they do not do business with others or build things or buy things or help anyone. They simply lie upon the treasure and sleep like a spider in a web of gold and jewels. They sleep, and their wealth sleeps with them. So the man who was no great warrior thought to himself, What is the worst thing that could happen if I simply took one golden object, burgled just one thing within close reach, and ran off with it? How could a sleeping dragon possibly miss one golden object taken from a sea of golden objects? And this is what he did. He crept in, grabbed a bejeweled golden cup, and ran off with this trophy. Well, the dragon stirred in his sleep, awoke, uncoiled himself, and smelled that someone fond of eating pork rinds had been near his hoard, and felt that it had been fooled with, and discerned also that a jeweled golden cup had been stolen. After the manner of dragons, he burned with rage. His inner fire heated up white-hot and began to pour out when he breathed, and pushing his way out through the larger, long-disused dragon exit, he burst from his treasure cavern into a world where an old man named Beowulf was now king. The dragon had no idea who had taken his cup, nor where he had gone, nor even who was king. So what he did was quite simple. Flying just above the treetops, he followed his nose to locate anywhere human beings lived, and when he found any horse or barn, shed, or mansion, he burned it. Unlike most dragons, he was not a creature who spoke or argued. If he had a name, no one ever learned it. He simply took deep, angry breaths, swelling his ribs out, glowing blindingly white-hot from the fire within, and then he spat out gouts of flame many times longer than his own immense, fully fifty-foot length. The dragon was so large, he would not have comfortably fit in any meat hall in the land. In just a few hours, it seemed as if every single building of any kind for miles and miles was alight. It would only be a matter of time before it was Beowulf's great hall's turn to be lit on fire too. Soon enough, 
local politicians, spurred on by their people, showed up at Beowulf's royal hall, demanding he tell them what he was going to do. Some strongly suggested Beowulf should offer the dragon the man who stole the treasure, with the treasure he had stolen, so the dragon could eat the man and take his treasure back. Maybe then, they felt, the dragon would be satisfied. Beowulf wasn't sure. There's no guarantee that would work, nor that we can find the one who stole from the dragon, he growled, deep in thought. Others argued passionately that the traditional and proper thing to do was to offer a beautiful young virginal woman to the dragon to do with as he wished. They insisted that dragons famously love beautiful young virginal women, and so it was worth a try. Some even seemed willing to provide names of specific young women they thought the dragon might like. We're not going to do that either, Beowulf the king told them all, to their strict disapproval. And no one was very pleased when Beowulf told him what he had actually decided to do. His hair and beard had been white for some time now, and though he still stood straight and strong, the truth was that he had grown a bit fat and quite slow. He mostly took long naps, especially during the cold weather. Beowulf announced firmly, This kingdom does not negotiate with dragons, and the only thing I know to do with monsters is kill them. Then, over the objections of his court, he walked off stiffly and slowly to find a blacksmith who could make him a dragon-fighting shield. One counselor to the king warned that in so doing, Beowulf might well be remembered as a brave warrior and mighty hero, but as a very bad king. A king's proper place is on his throne, the man proclaimed, standing resolutely in Beowulf's great hall. But Beowulf had already left. Every war shield anyone had ever seen was always a circular, thick, sturdy piece of wood, just large enough that one could almost have hidden behind it, curled up into a ball. Some of the more brutal bucklers had iron nails hammered into them to turn aside blades, an iron spike sticking out of the middle to stab people with, or a border of iron around the edge to smash people's swords and axes aside while stabbing them over it with the other hand. But every single one was always made of wood. With many of the wooden structures in his kingdom in flames, Beowulf did not want to hold up a wooden shield to protect him from dragon fire. So he had a smith quickly make him a very large, impossibly heavy shield of solid iron. There was no time to make it into a perfect circle or decorate it with the king's crest, so it was just a large, thick, rectangular plate with a handle on the back. Do you want leather straps on the back to put your arm through? the smith asked. But Beowulf wanted the whole thing to be made of iron, and so the smith attached an iron handle to the back as Beowulf went off to collect his war gear, which had been hanging up as wall ornaments of significant historical and cultural value for some years. The smith himself, though a strong young man, found he had serious difficulty lifting the iron shield once it was done, and he doubted his old king would be able to stand upright with it. Beowulf had survived many battles and adventures since Herod, but he was now as old as anyone's grandfather, though he himself had no children. Beowulf came back to collect his shield, wearing the fancy gold-decorated helmet Hrothgar had given him many decades before, and his repaired mail shirt, bearing his mighty sword nailing. He grabbed the thick iron shield and picked it up, just as if it were merely made of solid oak, grunting as he did so. And then, on horseback with eleven men, he headed off to where the worst of the burning was said to be going on. They had not got far before a young man stopped them and admitted that it had been he who had started all of the trouble by stealing a cup from the dragon's hoard. He pressed the gold goblet into his king's hand, 
and then tried to leave. As he did, Beowulf's iron grip closed on his shoulder. Wait, we're going to need you to lead us to the dragon's horde now, the monster hunter king snarled, not unkindly. We cannot fly to keep up with him, so the thing I always do is put myself where he is headed, as I did at Heorot, or where he lives, as I did with Grendel's mother. I do not know where he is headed, unless it is to find you, so why not put you where he lives? If one man stealing one cup has enraged the malicious monster so much that he is setting fire to half of my kingdom, how quickly will he fly if all thirteen of us threaten his horde entire? The young man had no comment to offer as to this. And so they rode with the young man, who was not a brave warrior, directly to where the horde was. It took them two hours to get there on horseback. The place had a small cave entrance surrounded by looming cliffs and scrub brush. Then they waited 